Hello and welcome to another Climate Crisis Conversation, part of the podcast series we're calling Catastrophe or Transformation. And today I'm sitting here with psychotherapist Caroline Hickman from the Climate Psychology Alliance. And we thought we'd just revisit a topic, uh, which is in fact the topic through which we first met. And that is the subject of eco-anxiety. And we met, didn't we, Caroline, because I was making a programme for Radio 4 for the Costing the Earth series. And incidentally, that is still on BBC Sounds if anybody wants to listen to it. Um, Because at that point, I mean, when was it? When was it we made that? It was back in the summer. It was hot. I remember. It was um, actually it was back in April. Was it really? Yeah. So it was end of April. I think it was we did it. So it's a good six months, seven months It ago. was hot, though, you're right. It was. It was. Um, and at the time, it felt like this term eco-anxiety was quite new, yeah. uh, in a way. It was just kind of bubbling away in the press and it was coming out. And But I personally was really feeling it because um, mm. I was having sleepless nights. I was reading things about, you know, deep adaptation. Mm. I was kind of mm. getting into some really gritty uh, writing and tomes that people were writing. And, and I and I kind of didn't realise where that was going to take me. So um, decided to make this programme. And it hasn't kind of gone away, has it? Actually, this, this no. term is being banded about more and more. So I- in your work, are you finding it? I think people are actually developing more and more interest in it um, at the moment and and I think increasingly desperately wanting to understand it and pin it down, um, partly I think to reduce their anxiety about eco-anxiety, yeah. but also there's a lot of uh, interest in how it's impacting on children and young people. So I think there's, and it accompanies of course all of the increase in school strikes and the Extinction Rebellion actions. But also, we were talking earlier, weren't we, there's sort of almost weekly, if not daily, reports from the world about the worsening mm. situation of the but, environment. Yeah. So the just... fires, the, the ice, mm. the hailstones in Spain in August. You know, when you looked at that picture, did you see it? Mm. If, you know, men with, you know, shoveling hailstones yeah, in the middle yeah, of August yeah, yeah, in yeah, yeah. Spain. Yeah. So... I think what's definitely increasing is awareness and environmental actions and things happening, but also what's going to go with that is people's worry about it. And those headlines are kind of seem to be coming more often, don't they? Because actually, which is a brilliant thing, Mm. climate is moving up the agenda. So we're hearing it more in the media. Mm. And I, um, you know, hopefully like a lot of people, you sort of take things on when you're listening to the radio, doing something else and you're half hearing stuff. So you're hearing half a headline Mm. and suddenly you're hearing um, actually scientists think it's 10 times worse the way the ice is melting, you know, or or whatever it is. And so it's those sorts of half heard um, things that you you actually start feeling slightly out of control with what actually is going on, and that builds <laughs> yeah. a sense of ang- anxiety, doesn't it? It it does. I, I I think you're lucky if you feel slightly out of control. I mean, I feel completely out of control. Quite Do a lot. you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've got this pile of things that I'm going to go back to and read, so that I've fully absorbed Absol- all that information, yeah. mm. um, and I can only take a bit at a time. No, and half the time I hear that stuff come out. Um, there was the State of Nature report last week, and I can remember standing in the kitchen thinking, I've not even absorbed and fully understood the last lot that came out <laughs> exactly. from the week before, so don't throw any more at me, you know. I have to, and I haven't read it, and I'm aware it's there. And the, on the front page of The Guardian, there was this picture, and the picture stayed with me of this Scottish wildcat. 
And I just thought, I, I'm not ready to read about the threats to Scottish wildcats this week. But it sat there waiting for me and I'll, I need to read it and I want to absorb that information. But when I read about them, I, it wasn't so much anxiety. And I think that's partly what we've talked about before. It's also the accompanying other feelings that come with that awareness. Just anxiety is, if you like, a kind of useful gateway into this stuff. Stuff, that's a good word. But actually, it's this mix of feelings. And so what I immediately connected with as soon as I saw that State of Nature report was grief and that sense of just desperate loss and rage and frustration. It's like not the wildcats, you know. And and it's not everything. It's not this, not that. Please, no, not more of that. So I'm certainly, and and I would frame that as part of eco-anxiety, that anxiety and grief and rage and despair... And some guilt and some shame are all bound up together in this complex emotional response as soon as we become aware, which is why I had to kind of delay that awareness. It's like, OK, I've had enough of that awareness for today. I'll uh, I'll come back to that. And I, I need to I want to go back to it because I want to be aware. It's there's another phrase I heard that I thought was really powerful, which I keep coming back to, which is that anxiety and that grief and that rage is the pain and the price that we pay for living fully in the world. So I want to live fully in the world. I want that awareness. But I also need to kind of give myself permission to not be, have it fully in my full consciousness 100% every day. Because I threaten it, I, I fear it would break me and destroy my ability to deal with anything else and there are other things as well that are still important so you know other people's pain about other things are also still important Um, and people's birthdays are important and growing our vegetables are important Um, and friendship and love and laughter and happiness is still important so I don't want to give myself over to it but I don't want to push it away either Mm. so so is it a useful word because actually anxiety anxiety was anxiety we're all anxious we have lots of things it doesn't sound big enough does it it? no no it doesn't sound big enough and you You couldn't phone in with that could you taking the day off I've got eco-anxiety I mean it's well I wonder if people might want to I mean No, and it doesn't describe what I hear people talking about when they talk about it. So I'm hearing lots of stories from people about their emotional responses to the climate emergency. Um, So for shorthand, we could call it eco-anxiety. But people, when you actually hear what is actually happening, so, you know, people are talking about going shopping and standing in a supermarket or a shop and not feeling able to choose what to buy because they just look at the food in front of them and go, oh, well, I can't buy this because of that and I can't buy this because of that and I can't buy that, And but I want that. So you've got that conflicting desire. And also, actually, oh, that healthy eating says I should eat this, but if I eat that, then what impact will that be having on X? And what about the orangutans and palm oil? And what about rapeseed oil? And what, which one can I buy? Which one is safe to buy? Would someone please just tell me what I can eat or just feed me? Because it just starts to overwhelm. And if you engage with that repeatedly again and again and again, the risk is, is that you're just going to feel inadequate and incompetent to the task of choosing which foods to buy. 
in the light of all this new information. And, you know, I'm hearing stories of parents saying that their children, that they didn't realise were worrying about this. Waking in the middle of the night, sobbing, thinking that they're going to die next week. You know, Mm. young children, children worrying about their brothers and their sisters dying. Children saying that they shouldn't get a pet for the family because the pet will die. How will the pet survive? So, you know, a lot of the time we will push these fears slightly out of sight because we don't want to live with them on the surface all the time. But they're lurking around under the surface and either they will bubble up to the surface and start to come through thick and fast through our defences or when our defences are down when we're asleep or when we're sort of very relaxed and thinking about something else, they could just push through. You know, I'm I'm hearing of marriages that are under terrible pressure because one partner in the marriage uh, is really anxious, really worried, and is having fantasies about moving to mid-Wales and living in an alternative community and buying a field. And the other half, the other partner, saying, well, what's the problem? Don't be stupid. Don't be silly. Something will happen. You, you're overdoing this. You're making too much of it. And the, well, if they can't find ways to talk to each other, then that's causing intolerable pressure in that relationship. I've heard teenagers saying, there's no point going to university. What's the point? What's the point in getting all of those debts and all of those fees? Because actually there won't be a world in which I can work as, you know, an architect or, you know, a surgeon or whatever it is the the young person is thinking about doing because they're projecting into the future. And the birth strike, of course, which is something that we covered, isn't it, on the programme? Oh, you, you know, did, women just saying yes. they don't want to yeah. have have children anymore. I mean, I call it yeah. birth strike because it was, a, a, you know, there has been formalised into a kind of movement. But I think there are plenty, plenty of young people, um, you know, contemplating whether it's a good idea to have children. Absolutely. I hear more and more thinking about that. But then I hear older generations looking at that as if to say, what on earth are you talking about? Really hard, I think, intergenerationally to empathise and relate to the way that different people, uh, different generations, different ages are feeling about this. Because mm. it's a very powerful thing for young women and young men to say is that I'm not going to have children or other generations don't perhaps understand that. And I've heard from grandparents that they're feeling bereft and furious. But then their children in return who are in their, you know, late teens or, you know, young adults are furious with them and saying, if your generation had dealt with this earlier, then we wouldn't be in this position of having to make this awful decision. So, and not finding a way to kind of talk about that together. I mean, I've heard some extraordinary powerful anger from young adults and late teens saying, why didn't you wake up to this sooner? You had the chance to do that. You know, this was known about decades ago. Mm. And, you know, we saw on the television the Extinction Rebellion uh, protester who was gluing himself to the underneath of the car and his grief and his sobbing and bringing out that photograph of his children and saying, you know, I'm doing this for them. That That unrestrained grief mm. and pain and loss, that is all part of what we have to think about in terms of eco-anxiety. It's this awareness um, and grief. 
But is it useful to name it? I mean, how is it useful to name it? But it does that give us a way of dealing with it? Mm. Or should we be dealing with it? Or should we just be feeling it and, uh, you know, saying to ourselves, it's okay to feel it. This is exactly what we should be feeling. We're normal, yeah. you know, and all those yeah. sorts of things. I mean, it's, you know, by, by having a, a word for it, um, you know, that could either be useful because we're obviously, you know, identifying it and, and you know, coming to terms with it. But but equally, it gets boxed, doesn't it? It's, oh, it's just mm. the eco-anxiety. It's a real dilemma, isn't it? Yeah, because there's, on the one hand, naming things means that we can relate and we can empathise. And so you can say, oh, I think I'm feeling eco-anxiety. And people can immediately respond to that and say, oh, yes, me too. So it makes you feel less alone. And I think that's really crucial, that sense of community, that sense of belonging and empathy and people understanding. But on the other hand, um, you know, it, it, yes, you could pin it down and over-define it. It's a bit like studying um, a natural creature like a butterfly you can study it by killing it and pinning it to a board and then you can dissect it but that doesn't give you the essence of what it means to be a butterfly it's no use at all or you can lie in a field and just observe them and watch them and imagine what better be the essence of being a butterfly is like here i think we need a bit of both but without killing it without actually pinning it down too much we don't want to pathologize it I don't think we want to medicalise it. I think it is a very, very healthy response to what's going on in the world. I would worry about people that weren't feeling emotional about what's going on in the world. I'd worry about what they were having to do with their feelings of empathy and care and concern in order to separate themselves off and not worry about other people involved in this. Um, and I think maybe we're seeing a little bit of that in the kind of shadow of the eco-anxiety where people are reacting really negatively and in a very angry, blaming, shaming way, maybe to some of the actions of Extinction Rebellion. And maybe in trying to shame people, if they say, oh, I'm anxious about the state of the world, it'd be like, you know, there's a lot of people kind of saying, well, you shouldn't be and this is pathetic and, you know, really saying that, you know, you're a snowflake um, and that you've got no resilience and you've got no robustness and, you know, it's a bit like that Monty Python sketch, isn't it? It's like, oh, we had it, we, it was much worse in the yeah, past, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in a, in a way, no, maybe we can't compare it with living through a world war or watching your family starve or, you know, being tortured. No, maybe it can't be compared in that way. But equally, maybe comparing it is really unhelpful because it is a genuinely emotional, frightening experience to go through. And it's really not helpful to be dismissing it or shaming people because I think there is a quality to this eco-anxiety, eco-awareness, eco-grief, whatever we want to call it, there's a quality which I don't think compares with other things that people have gone through, which is because this is about a fear of environmental doom, a fear of environmental disaster. And it is all encompassing. And it's also connected to the connection with the natural world and with the environment. So it's making people feel horrendously out of control. Whereas a lot of the other things that people have lived through, which you can relate to, like nuclear war or disaster, um, are human caused. Whereas this is human caused, but nature now is doing its own thing. Nature has its, hers, her own agenda. 
it has its own process and we are not in control of that. And I think it's that that's giving it the edge of terror and feeling massively out of control for people. Mm. So, yeah, it's anxiety, but it's anxiety with boots on. It's anxiety plus, plus, plus. I, I do think that's absolutely it, that this, this idea that, you know, what is causing this is beyond human control. You know, it's that thing, isn't it, that, that mm. we can't do yeah. without nature, but nature can do without us. Yes, yes. I mean, that is, and it is huge. It's yeah. absolutely enormous. It is, and it's, it's making us rethink or making quite a lot of us, maybe not everybody, rethink our place in the world. You know, we've got this kind of anthropomorphic worldview where we are the superior species. So if we're so superior, how come we've caused this? How come we've created this situation? Um, and of course, that means that a lot of people are looking for technological solutions to this and looking to kind of, you know, science our way out of this without really understanding perhaps that what needs to be faced first and foremost is our vulnerability to the fact that nature I think we said this before nature has her own ideas mm. it, its own ideas and that feeling out of control and that sort of waking up to the fact that we're not maybe so superior and this trajectory of growth that we've been committed to and invested in you know bigger better more you know, more, more, more of everything. It's just actually sold us, we've sold ourselves a lie. Mm. And we can't have more. We can't have more of absolutely everything and just carry on the same because it's hurting us now. We're hurting the planet. So just going back to that um, programme, as we say, what, six, seven, uh, six, seven months ago. Yeah. Um, and I was just describing that I was in this um this stage of just being having this kind of torrent of emotions wake it's that feeling isn't it that you wake up and you're kind of relieved when you can go to bed because you can just kind of switch <laughs> off but then this minute you wake up it's like when you switch on your computer you can hear it all downloading into your brain absolutely image after image thought after thought you know and with social media the way we all just skim through you know twitter feeds or whatever and you half hear and you half see and all of that just was just kicking in and i mean i i don't know i've never suffered post-traumatic stress per se but you know cold sweats just it's hideous absolutely mm. hideous but I have to say that through various things not least making that program and talking about it which is one of the things that I think we have to do first is actually just name it and talk yeah. unashamedly about it to, yeah. to, to any sympathetic person um, but 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 for me I you know created a group within my own community because mm. You know, mm. I live rurally and in a village and I we live here because we like privacy and things like that. And we, we communicate with people on a kind of day to day level. And obviously we've got we've made strong friendships, but not not when not, when it comes to something as enormous as this, you suddenly start feeling rather more alone. Yeah. So I made a conscious effort to sort of reach out and have found within a very small radius, really, an awful lot of people. Who are feeling exactly the same. And we've come mm. together and we are do doing stuff. Well, talking, I think, uh, to be honest, that's about, you know, uh, it's brilliant to do that. But we're actually putting it into action. And of course, this is the thing now that's talked about a lot, isn't it? Mm. How do you deal with all this grief and loss and rage feelings of 
turn it into something positive, go out there and act. But then, of course, what is it to act? Not everybody wants to go onto the streets and wave banners. No, absolutely. And you have to be careful that that action isn't just displacing and denying those feelings either. I think the action is fantastic and that community activism of whatever kind is really valuable. And you're absolutely right. It's about community, belonging, being together with other people and feeling mirrored that your fears and your concerns are shared by other people. Yeah, but uh, it's really important to not do that and completely push away the feelings because the feelings have to go with you. And what you can do is act out of those feelings of despair or frustration or anger or shame or guilt and use them to fuel the action that you're undertaking. Um, I I would worry if the, you know, the activism was in place of connecting with the feelings because you've got to connect with those first and then act. And that's the kind of external. I'm glad to hear that you've got that group. I think it's really important. I've got maybe two or three groups that I call on. There's the Climate Psychology Alliance. um, But then there's another couple of groups that I connect with. um, And the dog walk, that always helps. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I do want to have those regular places of connection for myself. Otherwise, I would be feeling completely lost and overwhelmed and at sea with all of this. But for me, remember, it's got to be both an internal and an external solution. So eco-anxiety isn't just uh, an internal, personal, psychological process. So although we may feel it personally, we might feel that anxiety in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. We might have the symptoms as we would with any other sort of uh, anxiety. You can have that internal process, learn to breathe through it, learn to meditate, practice mindfulness, take yourself on a walk, don't freeze physically when you're feeling it, do eat, sleep, rest, swim, whatever action. Some physical action can be incredibly helpful when you're feeling uh, a lot of anxiety. So you need that personal one, but you also need an external action of some kind such as you can just walk but you can also join an activist group mm-hmm. so you're not alone internally so and you what you're hearing me do is go backwards and forwards so i've got my internal solution and reflect and breathe and then i want to take action in the world and go out there and be passionate and angry and powerful or whatever it is you need to do and then retreat Come back to yourself and reflect and reflect internally. Check in with yourself again. How am I feeling? What are my feelings like now? Because if we dismiss those feelings, then then we're going to start to develop physical health problems. We're going to start to hurt ourselves emotionally. We're going to dismiss the value and the importance of these feelings, especially if we don't understand those feelings. And I think that's one of the things we can be particularly um, rubbish about is allowing ourselves to have this mix of feelings. If we don't understand it, we might go, well, you don't make any sense to me, so please just go away. It's really crucial that we allow all of these feelings and don't judge them. One of the things I, because I mean, in a way, these kinds of, you know, what to do about it, um, in fact, I was looking at something. Was it the Grantham Institute? I think had a, uh-huh. a leaflet, uh, nine things you can do about climate change. You know, to make yourself feel better, kind of thing. And, oh, and, really? And, and actually, it's getting to the point where you think, oh god, not another one. Uh, but what anyway, was on the I list? Do you on remember? It. Well, number one, yeah, make your voice heard. Oh. And I thought absolutely. In fact, I don't think I read, read the rest. I thought that is 
so true. Yeah. Because through that becomes empowerment. Yeah. And then you start going on. Um, certainly, I I have am, you know, this kind of what is my voice? How do I speak literally and you know put together a piece of argument and be able to deal with what comes back at me and all those sorts of things? But also, what do I want to say? What do I think? You know, it's sort of yeah. we've, I've spent so much of my life being told what to think by you know at school with some person standing at the front telling us. Yeah. You actually don't get this chance very often to stand up and say what you think. And it's so, it's it's pretty exhilarating actually. Oh, so that's interesting, isn't it? So now you seem to almost be saying that there are opportunities here mm. which we wouldn't have had any other way. So we couldn't maybe can't go quite so far as to say thank heavens for climate change, you know, we're happy that it's here because it's giving us these opportunities. That would be an extreme position that would be a silly thing to say but maybe in engaging with it slightly differently emotionally it's giving us opportunities for building emotional resilience for building connection for family and like you just said for having your voice heard about something because here's something that's important enough to speak up about yeah the other thing that we really ought to sort of remember is that these emotional responses are connecting us back to our own humanity. And maybe that's something that's slightly lost in modern contemporary Western society. So what do you mean by humanity? I mean that we are, you know, that we can get ill and that we can be frail and that we can suffer and that we're not machines, broken machines that need to be fixed. But that actually some of that uh, suffering... It has a purpose because it connects us back to the suffering of others and it it means that we feel less isolated and less alone. Uh, Isolation is a bigger problem in terms of our mental health than anxiety if because the isolation takes us away from people. But anxiety in the way we've been talking about it can actually connect us with people. So in a sort of counterintuitive paradoxical way, it kind of could start to resolve some of the mental health problems has been plaguing mm-hmm. uh, society for some time. We, we kind of, we, we feel threatened by things um, and we assess the threat, we evaluate the threat. All unconsciously we're doing this sort of, you know, in, instantly, but we, we look at what's happening and we think, you know, can I fight it or can I run away from it? And if not, if you can't do either of those two things, then you can freeze with a kind of indecision. But the other thing we can do around that, so we've got the fight, flight, freeze, but the other thing we can do is fib. We can lie to ourselves and to other people around it. And we can kind of fall into this kind of delusion or uh, fall into sort of denial. So I think the complexity of the challenge that climate change is bringing is giving us extraordinary opportunities to build an emotional resilience and build alternative futures Mm. that maybe would be better than the ones that we're losing. Mm. You know, people talk a lot about hope and and talk about the importance of, uh, you know, giving up the false hopes and giving up hope that is unhelpful. But maybe, and I think that's what you maybe are talking about when you talk about feeling exhilarated and excited and maybe there's some opportunities here that we wouldn't have got any Mm. other way. Mm. And I think it's it's also this... um, 
yeah, this kind of uh, 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 harnessing the emotion. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, yeah, it is funny, isn't it, talking about climate change as an opportunity. Yeah. But uh, it is giving us the the arena in which to, to be emotional mm. and to have that as an acceptable way to be. Isn't it amazing? It makes you realise how repressed yes. we've become, you know, individually and collectively. Yeah. Um, but also, as Gail Bradbrook talks about this, and I think it's, she calls it the rising feminine. Have mm. you come across this? Yeah. So, so it is this idea that in a kind of patriarchal society for so long, emotion hasn't been something that we've placed any value on at all. Mm. And this is giving us the opportunity to allow the, the, all this emotion to erupt mm-hmm. and for us to find ways of interpreting it, uh, acknowledging it, mm-hmm. loving it, and then uh, using it to, to go forward and act and change the world kind of thing. And it's, I love this idea. I mean... You yeah, know, I don't know. I think it's, I think it is the rising feminine. I think it's it's great. I mean, obviously, it's, it sounds quite kind of um, uh, uh, you know reductive in a way, kind of masculine feminine thing. But I, I, it's a bigger picture than that, isn't it? Oh well, I know. I think it's very interesting. I, I think it's it's non-gendered. Mm. That's the thing to remember. So we're not talking about men and women. We're talking about masculine and feminine. And that means there are sort of masculine and feminine qualities in all of us. So you have your masculine and feminine qualities and vice versa. So, you know, I, I'm not so sure if I fully understand this idea of the rising feminine, because I'm kind of wondering where she rising from and where she been. And, you know, has she been suppressed or in the depths or lost for a while? I would prefer to think of the feminine as having been being recognised, the recognised feminine maybe, or sort of waking up to this feminine, which has always been there, but maybe being disguised. Because we're talking about things that appear through metaphor and through image. And it's a more lunar philosophy rather than the solar masculine heroic. So when we're talking about how to deal with climate change, for example... Some of the kind of the strategy of Extinction Rebellion, for example, is about image and it's about humour and it's about theatre and it's about engaging people with that mixture of feelings and honouring and valuing the emotional qualities of what we need to bring to that and not just going out there and fighting. There are times to fight and there are times to fight with words and with music and with image and with love. And I think it's that capacity to do both so I think, you know, psychotherapy would be interested in thinking about the kind of interweaving and the marriage of these different elements of masculine and feminine or the different elements of strength and vulnerability or weakness and the different elements of sort of good and bad that we actually need the holistic integrated healing between these split strong opposites mm. Um, otherwise we will get terribly polarised again in one or the other and then there's always a shadow and that shadow of the feminine is just as vicious and as the shadow of the masculine so you've got the shadow of the masculine which says you will not get sick and you see it on the tv advertising you know you will if you get a cold you're going to take tablets and be back at work tomorrow yeah, that's the shadow of that heroic masculine. You know, you know, if you're, if, if you're sick, you're pathetic. And it leads to terrible conflict, particularly amongst men, but not purely men, uh, women as well, particularly around perfectionism, that there's no tolerance of anything that's less than perfect. 
that we have to be back at work and you see it as well in the kind of the the need to take you know hundreds of selfies before you can tolerate an image of yourself so you've got that kind of perverse perfectionist drive where we lose sight of what it means to be vulnerable or to fail or to be you know soft or to have a sense of humor um, and the importance of that. So I'm rambling a bit, but I think that's that's partly what's being talked about. And what we're talking about there is paradigm shift, cultural shift yeah, 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 yeah. in terms yeah. of... But the feminine has been powerful and strong before. Sure. Sure. And the feminine is powerful and strong in other cultures. Yeah. So I think what we're talking about is this bringing that into this sort of, you know, industrial capitalist society yeah, yeah, yeah. And I that think values growth and power above all else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we should come back to this um, very topic because I think it's really, really interesting. Oh, and yeah, by that I'd point, like I'll to. have Gail Brabbrook's quote probably better nailed. And we can um, do that through looking at stories around yeah, it as well yeah, yeah. because that, that is, really just, helps to illustrate. I find it really fascinating. Yeah. But um, maybe just to finish on our topic of eco-anxiety for today, it's kind of, I mean, this, you raised it, you know, um, earlier, but with children. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we must acknowledge there are children around the world who haven't even got a bed to sleep and have lost everything. And, you know, we are incredibly privileged. But you did you did sort of say that example of a child waking in the night and, yeah. and you know, calling out for parents and all that sort of thing. I mean, you know, what is the appropriate way if people do have children going through this to, to acknowledge that and empathise and reassure? That's what you want to do as a parent, isn't it? And it's very hard if the parents themselves are... In exactly the same place. Absolutely. I mean, all the parents that I'm talking with, we, we talk and absolutely about the need for the parent to take space to deal with their own feelings uh, in order to help the child deal with their feelings. And they you can't separate those. You know, as a parent, it's perfectly understandable that you want to take your child's pain away and want to reassure and want to make everything okay. And what's really, really hard here is that you just can't. You can't promise them that everything is going to be okay. What you can promise them is that you won't abandon them and that you'll be with them and you'll hold their hand and you will stand there with them. But you also can't abandon them emotionally in this. So it's not just about physical abandonment. I think if parents are struggling to talk to their children and feeling anxious and worried and guilty that you're upsetting your child by talking to them about this, you could think about it slightly differently and think, well, if I don't talk to my child about this, am I in some way neglecting or abandoning them? I know those are strong words, but um, in some other way, because I'm not showing them and teaching them how to talk about this. Mm. Because if parents think their children are not talking about this and not aware of this, then they, they might be wrong. I heard this story um, earlier this week of uh, a six-year-old. So so one of the questions is, is, how young can we talk to children about this? Yes. Right? And we don't want to overburden and over-frighten six-year-olds and younger children because, you know, their awareness may be, you know, constrained by their development, of course. Um, but I heard this story, which I think is a, a, a warning story, of the six-year-old who was waking, screaming and crying in the middle of the night, thinking that they were going to die next week. Um, and the parents, you know, obviously were, were talking with the child about where have those fears come from. 
and the child had been listening to their older brothers and sisters who were out on the school strikes talking about it. And they told the six-year-old they weren't allowed to listen in and they weren't allowed to be part of that conversation. But if you're a six-year-old and you're told you're not allowed to listen to your 12-year-old and your 14-year-old brother and sister talk about something, what are you going to do? You're going to listen at the door. And this is what this child had done. So they had got that information without the support of an adult to help them process it, to make sense of it. They'd got that information illicitly, so they knew, they were scared they would be told off. So they didn't go and tell the parents that they'd heard this stuff that they were scared about and frightened of. So they kept it to themselves, Mm. which meant that was even 10 times worse for this poor child. So I honestly think talking to your child openly and honestly about it and taking responsibility for that, uh, showing the child, modelling to the child how to talk about difficult things. You know the child in front of you, so you need to tailor it to suit the child in front of you. If your child is sort of emotionally and very switched on to things like Extinction Rebellion, then you can talk to them at that level. If your child is completely oblivious or you think your child is oblivious, then talk to them at that level and say, you know, I think this is something that's important for us to begin to talk about. Um, Can you tell me when you're ready to talk about it? We don't have to do it all today, at which point they might be very relieved. Um, And then how can we talk about this? So depending on the child, ask them, Mm. you know, how Mm. would you like us to talk about this? Mm. Mm. But I would certainly put it on the table and say, I, as your parent, think it's important that we do start to talk about this and find ways to do that together. So there's all sorts of things you can do. You can watch the David Attenborough documentary together. Right. And then pause it and talk about it. You can talk to the child about what information they've already got. What have they noticed? I think with the school strikes now, since we spoke before, the school strikes have really taken off, haven't they? And I think that will be feeding into lots of children's awareness, even if they're not engaged with them, even if they're not doing them. They'll be aware of them. Mm. And they, I'm sure they've been looking at images of hundreds of thousands of children around the world out on the streets. So you could start there. You could say, tell me what you think about the school strikes. You know, have you looked at it on social media? What do you think? How do you feel about this? Is this something you want to join in with? So you could introduce it that sort of way. I think it's really important with children to give permission to this range of feelings. Mm. But and, and in so doing, then you're mitigating against a huge amount of eco-anxiety, right? Because yeah. the earlier yeah. we start talking about... Um, you know, about climate change to children, which is something we, we explored in the podcast, we didn't did, we? We were yeah. talking about all the, those things that you mentioned, that the yeah. David Attenborough and everything is, is uh, uh, an earlier one where we were talking about how do you talk to children about climate change? But in this, you know, in the context of eco-anxiety, it's by doing this preparate, preparatory sort of work and, and even just finding language to have those conversations. It takes time, doesn't it? I think, yeah. you know, as parents, we haven't got a clue, really. So you fumble <laughs> into the conversation about whatever it was, yeah. and you're learning on your feet, and then you come back to it and you're kind yeah. of, okay, right, so we just messed up a bit there and and you find a way through it and it can be very rewarding, actually. I I've, I've certainly feel that, you know, with our son. I think that's really lovely and I think it's really important that you actually don't get it right. So, you know, if you get it right, then what are you teaching your child about how to negotiate things and how to find their way through things, which are awkward and difficult? You don't want to be perfect. You just need to be good enough. You need to be the Winnicott idea of the good enough parent, which actually means that you don't get it right, that you actually do let your child down 
a little bit, not too much, not too often. But when you do, you repair it. Mm. What you need is this kind of psychological idea of this rupture and repair, rupture and repair, because that builds resilience and it builds emotional resilience. So getting it wrong slightly or the child feeling feelings which they're struggling with and then learning to talk to you about them and being received well and being you know, supported in finding their way through that mm. actually builds the emotional strength. Mm, mm, so mm. It, it, we don't just suddenly get emotional resilience and emotional strength out of nowhere. We get it by fumbling around and mm, mm. finding ways through this and, and together. The, you know, talking, the, earlier I was talking about the, you know, the value of, of naming eco-anxiety, you know, and is that helpful because it gets misinterpreted or, or whatever and everybody's worrying about what it is. But actually with children, I find, you know, the way to build emotional awareness and education is by naming you know when they're having a meltdown it's kind of yeah. you know, oh you're feeling total frustration and it's yeah. just putting a name on something and actually if we bring eco the word eco anxiety into that i mean mm. i haven't ever done this but i'm just thinking that there probably will come a situation where you know uh, our son wakes up in the middle of the night or whatever and to actually be able to say okay well I, that, do you know what this is this is i think this is eco anxiety because i've felt that mm. you know mm. and it, we've got a word mm. there which mm. actually if in the context of children is incredibly useful i think it is so long as it doesn't turn into a monster so long as eco anxiety doesn't become a pathology that we label children or adults around and go, oh, you're eco-anxious, and then use it to shame people or use it to tell people that there's something wrong with them. I I really like the use of naming things because it reduces your fears that you're going crazy, mm-hmm. right? Because if it's not this, then what is it? And I need something to contain my anxiety and my feelings and my terror around this. So naming it is really useful there. But let's not turn that name, that label into this kind of pathology, this thing that we're then going to search for an instant cure for. Because treatment, if you like, for eco-anxiety is first and foremost to be understood and to be listened to and to be uh, cared about and to have compassion both for yourself and for others and to find community. So, you know, those are treatments that you can't prescribe and suddenly fix with a pill or a tablet or just one thing. I slightly worry when people want a kind of quick fix around things like that because, you know, and I understand I sympathise, you know, you don't want me sitting here saying, oh, well, eco-anxiety, the cure for eco-anxiety is to, you know, get in touch with your humanity. You know, it's like, oh, for God's sake, can you just give me a, Hmm. you know, because I need to get back and do stuff, you know, I totally get that. I just just think we have to live alongside it. I don't think I don't think you can get rid of it. We are living in this age, as we now know, of of the, the reality of the situation. And personally, I think I'm getting alongside my eco-anxiety. I'm learning to live as I live and do the things that I do and be having a marvellous time and then look out the window and think, oh, yes, oh, yes, and the world is, you know, oh, gosh. And that's fine. And and then I can get back to whatever else it is. You know, it's, it's, I don't think there is going to be a cure even by doing actions and all these marvelous things and talking to people it's not it's not i don't think i'm looking for a cure right i don't think it's going away i was wondering that so as you were saying that i was sitting here thinking i wonder if we can get to a point where we appreciate the value of eco-anxiety and you can start to say what has it brought to me that i wouldn't perhaps have got any other way right Mm. so perhaps that eco-anxiety is a really valuable reminder that you're human, that you're alive, that you value yourself, 
that you value the world around you, that you value the people in the world that you love, right? Because you wouldn't be worrying mm. if you didn't have people to worry about, would you? You'd be sort of narcissistically thinking about yourself, maybe. Um, and maybe, you know, in this kind of narcissistically entitled way, worrying about losing your power or your money or your things. But that wouldn't necessarily make you eco-anxious. So maybe suffering eco-anxiety is a sign of compassion and care. Mm, I was just thinking maybe it's a sort of the, the trick or whatever is to, the, 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 is to sort of turn or think of it as not eco-anxiety, but eco-empathy, like, like you're oh, saying. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And you, you don't s- suffer with eco-empathy, but you, again, talking about identifying it, it's because you become so empathetic with the state of the world yeah. that it turns it, because, you know, anxiety is not useful, is it? It doesn't go anywhere. Empathy goes a long way because it, it then has a layer of understanding that goes with you. You, you want to understand. I want. To, I so want to understand how we've got here, where we're at now and what we can do. Yeah, I really love that. People have been looking for alternative descriptions for eco-anxiety and I hadn't heard that one and I think that one's lovely because it's much more positive, isn't it? It's much more about love and warmth and community and contact mm. than it is about anxiety, which we can pathologise and separates you off and says maybe there's something wrong with you. But eco-empathy is something everyone would want to sign up to, I'm mm. pretty sure. Yeah. It's like, yeah. 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 However, it would get criticised as being kind of new agey and hippie-ish and it would get dismissed. So much of this narrative it though, has, has got that element and we've just got to not care about that. Well, I think we've got to challenge it, actually, mm. and I think we've got to defend it. Mm. So, you know... I think we've got to have a robust defence and say, no, you know, I'm proud that I'm suffering from suffering from eco empathy. Um, And I think to suffer is okay as well, because it just means to be touched by. It means to be engaged with. It doesn't mean that it's actually always hurting or horrible because that empathy, if you feel empathy, then you're going to care. And if you care, then that makes you vulnerable to being hurt. And feeling loss and feeling bruised. And so, yeah, eco-empathy in itself does make you vulnerable to pain and suffering. But surely that's a better version. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm actually getting anxious because you need to go. I know you've got clients waiting. Uh, It's always good to see you, Caroline. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you too. um, meet and chat again soon. Definitely. You've been listening to Climate Crisis Conversations, Catastrophe or Transformation. I'm Verity Sharp. I was talking to Caroline Hickman, climate psychologist, and this podcast is hosted by the Climate Psychology Alliance. There's more resources, more to read, um, and more help, frankly, on their website. It's just climatepsychologyalliance.org. Join us again soon. Till then, take care.